Hello, everyone, and welcome to our podcast, Clear as Mud, where we talk to artists from all walks of life to discuss their personal and professional journeys that led them to where they are today. I'm one of your hosts, Graham Waldrop, and riding shotgun this week is Joseph Bell. Joseph, welcome back, sir. Good to be back, Graham. Joseph, tell tell the uh, tell the people out there who we're talking to today yeah. and why he's so significant. Yeah, we're we're talking to uh, Jeff Curley, a fellow SCAD alum. He actually was part of our year. Really happy to speak with him and see what's been going on with his life. Yeah, he's a producer at WB Boston. Uh, for those of you that don't know, WB Boston makes a lot of mobile games and big, massive online games like Lord of the Rings Online, Dungeons and Dragons Online. Uh, the project that Jeff is currently working on is Game of Thrones Conquest. So one of the cool things about uh, talking with Jeff beyond, you know, he's our friend. We've known him for, what, over 10 years at this point? Just around there. Yeah, is uh, basically how he worked his way into a producer role. So I think anyone who wants to get into the industry, if, if you're listening to this uh, this episode, I think this will be very beneficial for you to sort of learn where you need to start and who you need to know. And how do you network at a company, even if you're not going to work at that company forever? Jeff hasn't just worked at WB Boston his whole career. He's, he's bounced around and uh, eventually wound up there. But it was the, the job he had before WB Boston that really prepared him for this producing role. So I think, like I said, really beneficial if you're looking to break into the industry. Or if you are in the industry, you can probably relate to what Jeff had to, uh, had to go through. We also get into crunch, Joseph. We talk about crunch, the the touchiest subject in the industry. So that's that was also fascinating to get a firsthand perspective from someone who 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 has dealt with that and continues to deal with that. Yeah, and he goes through different options of how to mitigate it as well. So just lessons learned. Yeah, yeah. So, all right, that's enough from us. We'll get straight into the interview with Jeff Curley here on Clear as Mud. So Jeff, one of the funniest things to me was when we were at SCAD, we were doing portfolio portfolio review stuff. And I went through my whole spiel about wanting to be a, a producer on games. And you were looking at me like, you know, I mean, it sounds cool, but I know you like to organize people and, and tell them what to do and, and get things done. But I don't know if that position really exists. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, and and I was like, it exists. I'm telling you, I've done I've done the research. And you're like, well, okay, yep. man, whatever. And here you are now. Uh, <laughs> here you are now as a producer. I have I have thought about that many a times with a mix of embarrassment and nostalgia. And uh, <laughs> you know, I, I think that honestly, like the reason why is that like the SCAD curriculum just goes so heavy into like, yeah, be self organizers, make an indie game, and like do the thing that like the people on Super Meat Boy did, or all of those guys. And it's like, okay, well, they're all self organizers, and I kind of have a hard time seeing any person being a dedicated like project manager role. So I like. It's definitely my own fault for not knowing the research and like uh, digging into like exactly what that position does. But it's just uh, I don't think that uh, they really reinforced that type of role to us when we were in school. No, they didn't. It was very much like you will be an artist. You will be a level designer um, with with maybe a, a side of programming sort of thing. Um, right. Yeah, there was there was no producerial program at that at that school or anything like that. Um, so it was, it was all just, you had to just find it on, on your own. Um, if you were, if you wanted to specialize in that there, but, uh, yeah, it's really cool that, uh, have you, have you aboard here and, um, 
you're the first person that uh, from our from our class or from SCAD that's that's joined the show so far. Yeah, very exciting to be able to uh, to reunite with you guys and be able to talk shop a little bit. It's been too long. Yeah, for sure. So um, we all know this, but but Jeff, you grew up in Massachusetts, right? I did. I actually uh, returned up here in the north uh, after I graduated from SCAD. Um, so I. I uh, grew up in a small town in Massachusetts called Boxborough, not to be confused with Foxborough, where the uh, Patriot Stadium is. Um, and yeah, it's like very much deep into the uh, like the historical areas of uh, Massachusetts, like right near Concord, uh, pretty close to, to Boston, where you can do like the Freedom Trail and all that stuff. So uh, yeah, I've lived up here for basically my entire life, except for the four years we were in school, and I've been here uh, since we left. When did you start getting the the game itch in terms of either wanting to make games? I guess yeah, more so wanting to make games. I mean, we all I think at an early age were exposed to video games, but we actually considered, yeah, I, I think this would be something to do. Yeah, I mean the the initial like time when I first realized that something that I wanted to do uh, was actually like at a super young age, um, and I even remember the two games that made me uh, want to make games when I grew up, which was. Um, uh, Zelda Ocarina of Time and Starcraft, which I think were 97 and 98 respectively. Um, so I was still a youngin at that time. And, uh, they kind of like were really pivotal, uh, pieces in, in games for me. Cause they, um, they really like established in my mind, like exactly what the, the medium and like the art form could be as far as like a sense of adventure and a sense of storytelling and stuff like that. Like Starcraft was my first real big, like space opera type of story. And uh, Zelda is kind of like a fantasy adventure, uh, kind of similar to like what you would see in movies at the time, but you actually get to do it yourself. And uh, yeah, ever since then, when I was like, I think probably five or six years old, I was like, when I grow up, I want to be a game developer. It's it's my dream job. I want to make games. And, uh, you know, like for especially at that time when like games wasn't really widely considered like a like lucrative career path of like people didn't really think about game developers like sure games have to come from people making them but like it's not really considered something that like people got into um within like common common social recognition uh but i stuck with that that uh desire to make games for most of my life growing up and once it came time to uh, to pick schools uh that's what i told my um uh what do they call those like career, not career counselors, but like, you know, the, like the counselors that like help you figure out like, okay, what kind of school do you want to go to? Um, so I started talking to them about like game development programs and they're like, Oh, well, one of the best ones in the country is, is SCAD. And, um, I told them that I wanted to, uh, like meet people that think differently than I do. Cause I don't really consider myself an artist, but going to an art school, I thought would be really good for me. Cause I get to collaborate with people that problem solve in a different way. Um, and that's very much, I think that that was like a really great decision because, um, like working in games, it is a very collaborative space with people coming from all different skills and backgrounds. So that's, that's kind of how I got into, um, my desire to make games. Did you, did you like prototype anything before going to, going to SCAD? Were you working on, were you like thinking about games, thinking about designing games or did you make anything before you, uh, you decided to, uh, look at SCAD as an opportunity for, for college? I did a little bit. Um, Starcraft was actually one of the games that was really pivotal in that um, pivotal in that area as well, because it had its own like built-in editor. We could make your own content and stuff. And uh, when I was really young, I would kind of just mess around with the tools and like see what kind of like interesting stuff that I can make. And that's where I 
kind of first learned the concept of like a if then statement because they had a, a system called triggers, which is like, oh, under these conditions, then these things will happen. Uh, so that's like the most basic building blocks of, of programming, um, which I thought was really cool yeah. when I could first make some things happen. And uh, the first like actual like tangible thing that was like a like playable thing that I could say that I made was um, my cousin and I actually uh, participated in this contest uh, before StarCraft II came out, uh, which was to make a um, like a, a series of uh, missions that would encapsulate what they referred to as a campaign. Um, and uh, submit it to this like online like creative community that made StarCraft campaigns, and uh, the I think top three winners would get uh, like some some kind of prizes, and then uh, I think everyone that participated also got uh, uh, beta keys to access the StarCraft II beta, which was like the most anticipated game of my entire life, and to this day I don't think that there will ever be another game where I am more excited to play because I waited twelve years for that game to come out. With uh, that thought process of of going through and trying to figure out how to build uh, a campaign in StarCraft. I, I guess like um, using that uh, being on computer helped you out a lot with being able to learn some of those processes too, right? So you you were playing across not only consoles but uh, but PC games, and uh, that gave you kind of access into trying things out and and uh, messing around with the actual game code. Absolutely. Like that, that's one of the things that like at that time, there weren't really a whole lot of, um, of like console games that allowed for user created content. Like we have, we have a bit more of that now. Like there are games, well, I guess little big planets, like a little bit of a dead franchise, but super Mario maker is definitely still something that's really popular. There's like a couple other games you can find here and there that allow for user created content. And those are all on, on consoles, but at the time there wasn't really anything or at least nothing that I was aware of. Uh, that allowed for um, making content on consoles because all of that stuff was on PC. And like when Warcraft 3 came out um, in the early to mid 2000s, then I started to spend some time in that as well. Um, so I like I tend to consider myself more of a console gamer, but that was one of the benefits that I saw at that time of playing PC games is that it actually allowed me to like flourish in my creativity of making some um, making making content that would lead me on the the career path that I'm on now. I can't remember. Did you want to do programming or, or level design? I remember. I remember there was a game. I think Joseph, or not a game, but a, a, a sort of level that was made in, at SCAD that you worked on. I think Joseph worked on it too, where you guys won some award. Pulse. Was uh, it? Yes, that was Pulse. Or was it? Yeah. Yeah, and you, you kept going. I'm an award-winning level designer, <laughs> uh, which is like the cutest thing in the world. As you know, being this this really grizzled old old veteran. Uh, person that I was. I was older than all of you, so I was like, oh, look at these these kids. By two yeah. years. Yeah, yeah. I know it felt like a lot more. Uh, old man. You know, the innocence was still in your eyes. Um, <laughs> but did you want to do level design? or pro- I can't remember what, what you really wanted to focus on um, when, when you were at SCAD, but even beforehand, did you know, like, I want to go in this specific area or, or not? I was very... Um I guess uneducated before I went into uh, into uh, college as far as like what all the different roles were. Like I knew that like game designer was a thing, and I knew that level designer was a thing, but I wasn't aware of like all like the nuances or specialization that you can get into within the um, like the field, and that that applies to basically like every discipline. So like art, design, engineering, like they all have different specializations and stuff like that. So there's a lot of of areas where I just wasn't really familiar with um, as 
and going back to that portfolio class that you had mentioned, Graham, uh, I remember that my focus uh, for what I had aspired to do at the time was I wanted to be uh, what is often referred to as a narrative designer, which is someone who comes up with um, with gameplay scenarios that service uh, narrative. Um, so that you kind of do like a little bit of like a writer and a designer role combined into one. And um, for a variety of, of, of reasons, uh, I ended up not pursuing that. Um, the biggest one being that like when I actually got into the field and I saw people that were doing the things that I wanted to do, it's like, wow, they're way better at designing things or writing things than I could ever really hope to be. Um, not that it didn't still interest me. It's just that like seeing what, what good looks like in those types of roles. I was like, Oh wow. Okay. So this is like, they've, they've been doing things related to this for a very long time. And this is kind of like their, their core skill set. And as I worked in the industry and like started to get more of a feel of all the different roles, including the, the production field that I am now in, um, I realized that that suited my more natural talents, um, especially with like the work that uh, we did when we were in, in schools, like kind of coordinating and coming up with a lot of the different uh, types of like assets that we would need to make for all the different aspects of like the level that we built within Pulse or uh, coming up with some of the of the plans for our senior studio project. So um, that kind of suited where my skills were. And I actually feel that I am enjoying the work that I do now more than I would if I were to try to pursue that narrative design um, role as I had originally intended. So it's not, it's not disappointing to you at all in any way? No, not really. I mean, I like getting into games is, was like the childhood dream. And I think that that at, at its core is kind of uh, like that is the core of what I aspired to do throughout the entire journey up to where I am now. And I think that it was really a matter of um, wanting to do something in games that I was good at and something that I felt like I could be like a really core contributor to because part of where the narrative designer aspirations came from, I think came a lot from that project that I worked on for Starcraft and that competition with my cousin where it's like, Oh, I love games with like really deep lore and I love making narrative focused content and stuff like that and being able to contribute to a canon. But I feel like that was where I really, uh, what I enjoyed about games as a gamer rather than what I enjoyed about games as a developer in terms of my actual relationship with them. I think that, uh, the sort of project management and like helping other people do their best work is what I actually am really passionate about, uh, within the, the, the industry as a developer. Yeah. that's an important distinction because I mean, the producer still has, you know, quite the influence on the project in, in every aspect not just, not just a singular one. So yeah, you're, you're still contributing in a, in a multitude of ways. Absolutely. The production side is a lot about solving problems for the people that are solving problems for the, for the people that are actually playing the game, right? So you get to touch everything uh, or touch a lot of different things in, inside a game development. Um, is that that type of experience over on your end as well? Yeah, I'd say that that's a really big part of it. Um, and I mean, the, the bigger of the team that you work on, or like the bigger the company that you work on, then uh, I guess the more specialized, for lack of a better term, I'll say that you have to be. Because like, if you work on a team of like 20 and like you, like your whole company is only 20 people, then you might be able to do with like maybe only one or two like producers slash project managers. And they'll they'll naturally have a hand in like a little bit of everything. Whereas at WB, we have a staff of 
think now we're like a little over 100, maybe 110 or 120. And um, there's a team of, I want to say like six or seven producers. Um, and we all have to focus on like individual teams um, as well as like supporting different disciplines. So for, for my own role as a producer, I support uh, the live operations team, which is a mix of designers, artists, QA testers, uh, product managers, and um, community managers. Uh, not as much engineering on that particular team. Uh, but then I also support the entire uh, design discipline as a whole. So all of our designers, um, I, I facilitate the work that they do and make sure that we have the resources that we need for us to be able to do our best work there. And then um, I also support a, um, a team that's referred to as Live Tools, which is our internal uh, tools that we use for our development to help um, like boost our productivity and kind of create patterns that makes their work a little bit easier and faster which is a team that is entirely engineers. So I, I touch a little bit of like every discipline, but um, obviously there's there's way more stuff going on at the company that I don't have my hands in because there's just way too much for one person to, to uh, be able to feasibly do. So before we jump more into producing things, tell, tell me about your SCAD experience. Because you were like, when I met you, you were like the most popular dude in the world. And not that you go to SCAD for popularity or it's like high school or anything, but it felt like every – you were in like <laughs> – you, you had like your, your, your core like friend group with Bryce and Batman and guys like that. But you also – everywhere you went, it was like you were great friends it seemed like with people across disciplines. I was like, how does this guy have the time to be friends with everyone? <laughs> You know, it's it's interesting because, um, and I've often talked about that with my uh, with my core group, like with uh, Akil and Batman and Bryce, like you mentioned. Freshman year was a definitely a year where, like, the entirety of the freshman class, especially in Springhouse, which is the dorm that I lived in. I know that both of you guys were commuters to SCAD, right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, so like Springhouse was definitely like a community onto itself where like a lot of the freshman class was already congregating there and like getting to know each other and stuff like that. And especially during, um, the first snowpocalypse that we had, which is always a hilarious notion to me being someone from the North, um, is that, uh, like the school was shut down for like a week straight. And so like, we were all just kind of hanging out at the dorms, like trying to figure out what to do. So a lot of people were just, uh, hanging out with each other and, honestly, probably getting a little frustrated at each other because of just cabin fever. Um, but like, there's a lot of time sort of spent on, uh, just like fostering that community. And I was definitely spending a good amount of time with people, uh, during that year. And as time went on, like those relationships kind of continue to either develop or, or fade or evolve in whatever uh, way that they would. And then we'd start to get to know like underclassmen and stuff like that. Cause I was at Springhouse for all four years that I was there. Um, and, uh, it got to the point where I actually applied to be a resident assistant at, um, at, uh, Springhouse and got the job and started my spring quarter of junior year. Um, cause I think one of the, uh, the RAs that they had had, had graduated and so I filled in that spot. And, um, then senior year was when it was like more established. Like I had my own room and everything and, um, had my own like section that I was like, like these are the residents that I was quote unquote in charge of. Um, but also like on top of all that. And I think that part of what helped get me the resident assistant job was that, um, I had like kind of self-organized a, uh, a film club at Springhouse where every Friday night or most Friday nights, uh, we would, 
uh, get access to the uh, the projector room in Springhouse, and we would just like watch a movie. And like, I started up a Facebook group where uh, where like people could vote on the the stuff that we would watch or like put up suggestions or whatever. So I think that that was like all of those factors, especially being an RA and especially with um, with doing that like film club thing, uh, is kind of what got more people to know who I was. Um, and even like people that were outside of Springhouse like would come in and. Uh, and like come and watch movies. Like I think the the movie that we had the highest attendance for was uh, after Avengers had come out on uh, DVD and Blu-ray, and that was I think the first movie that we watched. Um, I want to say that was fall quarter of freshman era of senior year. Uh, so that was like the big sort of inaugural kickoff of like the year's worth of, of film club. And like that uh, that TV room. I don't know if you guys remember yeah. the uh, the TV room at the front of Springhouse, but it was like literally packed. Yeah, yeah. Like, to the gills. It was hot as fuck in there. <laughs> like, there's so <laughs> many people just radiating heat. I because remember. The whole, I whole remember. Place is full of people. It was just a sweaty room of eighteen <laughs> yes. to twenty-one year olds. That was a regular thing that happened. That room would often stink. The uh, yeah, and then then how did that impact kind of your your academic stuff, having to balance the social stuff and the academic? I mean, it's it wasn't really too difficult for the most part because like the 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 thing that like uh, like my buddies like uh, Batman and Akil and Bryce and I always talk about that was like so weird, and it's it's funny that you bring up the whole like quote unquote popularity thing because there are always these people that like would be like, Oh, hi Jeff. Like, how's it going? Like try to like, just like strike up conversation with me and stuff like that. But I honestly didn't spend a whole lot of like close time with that many people. Um, it was mostly just like hanging out in my room with like my core group. And then like, uh, you guys and I would like get together every once in a while. Like we'd, uh, like go over to somebody's place and like have like a small, like get together, play games or whatever. Um, have late nights at the DMC. Um, but like a lot of those people that would come up to me are not necessarily people that I would be spending that much time with. It was just more of like, they knew me by reputation and like I was friendly with them. Um, but they weren't like people that I hung out with, if that makes any sense. Right. So that's the truth. That's the truth yes. behind the mask. <laughs> Cause it is always like, it seemed like no matter who it was, it was just like, you guys were bosom buddies been best friends for years. That's how it felt. You treat you. You always did a great job of treating people. Just in in a, in a way like you wanted to hang out with you, so it was. Uh, I don't know. I was always very impressed by that. It was there was never only it was never like a uh, disingenuous like yeah how you doing or anything like you know I do that all the time when I'm when I was uh, before COVID and we were you know going around and stuff. It's like sometimes yeah. I just don't want to talk to anybody. But you were always very affable, which I always re- respected, no matter what what mood you were in or or, or anything like that. So. I appreciate that, man. And I, I think that that's something that actually is really important for, uh, for like the line of work that I'm in, because like the best thing that a producer can be is, is someone who's really approachable, no matter the circumstances. Um, yeah. cause if, if you don't give off the, like the impression or the vibes that you're like there to help people or that you're, you're there to be like a friendly face or to like, listen, if they're struggling with stuff like that, then that's when you are more likely to have people kind of keep things bottled up or like if there's like work related issues or personal issues or whatever that like you as a producer are able to help with. If you are not giving off that impression that you're approachable, then they may just keep those to themselves and that can end up putting, um, putting undue stress on, uh, on a lot of the people in the company. But yeah, yeah, you're right. Exactly right. It's like a chain reaction sort of thing where, you know, it starts from the top, right? If, if someone's at the top is like unapproachable and that sets the tone and then, 
other people, you know, in their own disciplines might not talk. You know, it, it really is an interesting kind of kind of domino effect that happens with with whoever is at the top or near the top doesn't set the right tone. Then, yeah, it can adversely affect uh, the team. Absolutely. And it's um, it, it can depend on the environment that you're into um, as far as like how old the company is or how long people have been there and stuff like that, because like I find like the, the company uh, company I'm at right now, uh, WB Games Boston, uh, is uh, by far the oldest company um, out of the ones that I've been at because it used to be uh, called Turbine before it was acquired by uh, WB Games, and they're the uh, developers for um, a lot of uh, of like still running to this day uh, MMO titles. So they made um, Lord of the Rings Online and Dungeons and Dragons Online is probably their two most noteworthy ones, and then they did a um, a pretty old uh, classic one that actually just shut down a couple of years ago called Asheron's Call. And some of the people that I work with um, are people that worked on those games, like when they first uh, came out, like back in like the like early to mid 2000s. So they're, they're people that, have, that I'm working with that have been at this company for like 10, 15, maybe even up to 20 years. And with that level of experience and with how big the company is and how much history they have, there can sometimes be some... Um, for lack of a better term, like uh, like baggage or uh, distrust between disciplines based off of um, of like previous uh, like previous experiences with like mm-hmm. previous regimes and stuff like that. So, if you're able to help bridge that gap between different disciplines um, by like facilitating both of like both sides' work and both sides' conversation and goals and stuff like that, and for people who like just like like Turbine had kind of a uh, bad experience with producers in the past. Like they had people that were not particularly um, uh, effective or uh, that they just felt like they had kind of like hidden agendas. And um, I think that helping to set an example of like how um, approachable and how in their corner a producer can be can also really help to change people's perspectives and build more of a collaborative spirit with people that they otherwise wouldn't be quite as comfortable working with or coming to. We and we graduated in 2014. Yep. Right. Yeah. So, and and you bounced around a couple of different companies um, before you are we are now at, at at WB Boston. So, with people having that much experience, right, and coming into that, like you didn't have that much experience at that point. So, I mean, was that like intimidating coming in and being like, man, these guys, like a lot of these people are like, you know, super industry veterans here. Um, I wouldn't necessarily say it was intimidating as much as that. I just needed to learn a little bit more of where they were coming from. And, um, I had the benefit of, um, people in leadership positions within WB, um, being very supportive of me and like recognizing that I was a person that was like, like I wanted to help them and I wanted to do the best that I, that I could and, um, figure out what their needs were so that I could try to support them as best that as I could. Uh, which I think was something that they weren't necessarily always used to. And um, because of that, they they helped to get me into situations where I could better communicate with those people and uh, kind of so that they could start to see the same thing that um, uh, that like the directors were seeing in me and that like I'm there to help them and stuff like that. So there weren't really necessarily as many walls to to break through or climb over with them as much as it was like, there's a lot of people to get to know here. And a lot of these people have a lot of stories to tell about why they are the way that they are. 
Um, so just learning more about that, learning about how they like to work and operate and, um, and what role I can play in making that better for them, I think was, was where a lot of that work came from. And, um, I think that it's gone pretty well over the, the years that I've been there. I'll, I'll be, uh, I think I'm at like three and a half years now at WB games. It'll be uh, four years in October. And, um, yeah, it's been, it's been really great since I've been here. And this is the company that I've, I've been at the longest, which, um, a lot of companies, especially as you're first starting out, uh, contracts or layoffs or whatever can often lead to people only being there for anywhere between like six months or like two years. So it's great to be at one place for a long time. Yeah. No, it's, a, it's a really good run. And tell me about when the producing flip got switched or switch got flipped, however you want to say it. Like when, when was that, like, uh, when did that sort of become more of an option for you? Yeah, I think, um, so when I graduated, I was still in the mindset of, I want to be a narrative designer. Uh, I was recognizing that becoming a narrative designer right after graduating is not necessarily going to be a feasible option because you kind of have to do the, uh, the more entry level positions, the like, quote unquote, like pay your dues and, uh, do the work that you wouldn't otherwise necessarily be clamoring for because you're just trying to get a foot in the door. And um, as I was going through that process, it reminded me a lot of, um, do you remember at SCAD, um, crap, I forget the name of the, uh, uh, GDX, that was the name, name of it. it, was the uh, oh yes, GDX. The little expo yeah. thing that they did in, in Savannah, uh, which they eventually stopped inviting Atlanta people to actually physically go there, which was hilarious to me. Um, I didn't know that because I know I only went to one and what, yeah. So we never found out why they, they didn't invite us down anymore. Um, I don't know if, uh, if a reason was ever stated the, the vibes that I had gotten was that it felt a little, um, I don't, I don't know if political is the right term, but we definitely felt like a little bit of second class citizens in the territorial is probably the better term there. What's that? The, the territorial, like, so, with, with SCAD, Savannah and Atlanta are very different culturally in terms of the teaching and the and the students there. Uh, so, yeah, it definitely felt like stepping into a completely different college whenever we went down to Savannah. Yeah. Yeah. And, and both campuses talk shit about each other. I mean, it's oh, just yeah, the way yeah. it is. There's, there is a rivalry. <laughs> there definitely because Atlanta was the best. So, yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> well, I can't oh, remember man. what the original point was. You started saying uh, talking uh, about GDX. Yeah, so you were you were talking about uh, how did the the producer switch get flipped in my mind, right. and uh, the reason why I brought up GDX is because one of the speakers the first year that we went there, uh, Joseph, I know that that you were there that year. I can't remember if Graham you came with us that year as well, but uh, uh, there was this dude who I think he was at the time working at like Infinity Ward or Treyarch, like one of the companies that makes the Call of Duty games, and he was a a lighting guy uh i'll never forget because he was like super nervous up on that stage and i was like oh, i feel your pain buddy i'd, I'd be the same way if I, there, if I were there in your shoes uh but his uh his resume included uh i forget if it was like a hello kitty game or like a barbie's horse adventure game or something like that and uh like he he said something about that being like him paying his dues and it's like i totally feel that now because like i had worked in qa to start out and then I did a uh, customer service at my uh, second game company. And like, those are not the game roles that I aspired to be in, but that is the version of paying my dues that, uh, that I had to do. And, um, so anyway, getting, getting into like the actual, like approaching the, the switch flipping is that, 
as I entered into like the early stages of my game development career, um, and I got to see more people doing like the roles that I was aspiring to do or like that I was, that I was interested in. Like I just saw like the different types of designers that were there and like the skills that they have. And it's like, well, while I have some of those skills that, uh, that they exhibit in those roles, they are like so much better at them than I felt that I could ever hope to accomplish. Um, that it didn't necessarily intimidate me as much. It was like, okay, well, let me think about like what really is the right path for me to go forward. And um, while I was at Disruptor Beam, uh, there are a couple of my uh, coworkers that I had started to get uh, pretty close to that were in the uh, the production uh, discipline. And um, I started to talk to them a little bit about their work and was was uh, getting more familiar with the types of things that they did day to day and like would have meetings with them as they're trying to help out with uh, coming up with with tools for the the game that we were about to launch, um, which was the uh, Walking Dead March to War. Um, which unfortunately is, has been shut down since, but, um, uh, just through like getting to know them and, and figuring out what their work was like, it, it became a lot more appealing to me because it put them more at the center of sort of the day-to-day business of like, they were kind of had their hands in, uh, in basically everything that was going on and in a way where they were able to, um, use their, their personality and their organizational skills in order to help the other disciplines be able to do their best work. And so I was like, started to think to myself that that was something that I'd be interested in exploring because I feel like those are skills that I already have been developing through various experiences, whether it was through work or just through like the, like the film club that I had set up and like the RA stuff that I was doing. Um, and it started to feel like a more natural evolution of what I had already been doing both professionally and personally up to that point. Uh, so that's when I started to more seriously consider it. And there was a, a project that Disruptor Beam was working on uh, towards the end of my time there that actually uh, had a need for some pretty urgent uh, uh, development to get done because uh, it was still pre-release and uh, they needed extra hands because they had just let go of the uh, like the lead executive producer on the project. So my boss at the time who is one of the studio heads, uh, took over the uh, executive producer role. And he already knew that I had been interested in uh, training up on production stuff. So he kind of took me under his wing for that time that we were uh, clamoring to get a bunch of, of work done on the project. That's cool. And I think that's important, I think, for anyone that is working in, in QA or, or, or like, you know, or like the other thing you did with that customer service or whatever. But there's, you know, other bigger things happening, bigger positions at a company and you like the company, you know, getting to know people that work in a discipline that you're interested in, I think is so, so critical for advancement. I mean, even if you were not going to work there, right, just learning from them is, is so important and not shutting yourself off and staying in your bubble. I think it's like the worst thing you can do when you're at, when you're at a, a company. That was one of the, uh, I think, the pitfalls that I fell into with my first gig when I was at um, was at a Demiurge Studios. Uh, that was the company that I was in QA on um, Marvel Puzzle Quest, and uh, it wasn't really that it was like an environment that discouraged QA from talking to other disciplines as much as we were like just located kind of in a sort of separate corner from where all the rest of the dev uh, work was going on, and so the only times that I ever really got to 
socialize with any of the other disciplines or whatever would be through like our Friday social hours and stuff like that. But otherwise the only real communication that I was having was, um, was like throwing bugs over the wall for them to fix. But, um, I tried to, to spend a lot more time getting to know people once I went over to disruptor beam. Cause you're, you're exactly right. Like if you're not talking to other people within other disciplines, then you're not really building those relationships. Um, and especially early on when you're trying to figure out like, what do you want to do and where do you want to go? That's just so important for figuring out, like who you are and what is what is your skill set lends to most. So you get on this you get on this project. So tell it tell tell us more about that. Yeah, so this was a uh, unannounced mobile title uh, that Disruptor Beam had been working on, and um, sort of the, the long and short of it was that uh, we'd been working on this game for a while. I or I, sh- I say we more in the general sense because I was actually still working on. Um, on the walking dead project. I was the, uh, the player support lead for that game at the time. And, uh, this project had been, uh, kicked off and was being worked on by what started out as a small development team, but increased was increasingly growing as time went on. And they were taking, uh, developers from both the walking dead and then our other live game, uh, star Trek timelines. Uh, so they're growing, continuing to work on new features, having meetings with our publisher and stuff like that. And, um, it got to a point where uh, the publisher wasn't super happy with the work that was being done on it, and the uh, executive producer at the time um, was very insistent on the direction that he was taking the project in because he was sort of serv- uh, serving as like a creative uh, lead for it as well, and um, he was keeping his cards very close to his chest as far as like what the the status of the project was, was only giving him kind of minimal details on it. And it got to a, a boiling point where uh, the publisher wasn't really super uh, keen to continue the project. And uh, they had cited the executive producer as being one of the, the main problems with that is that like they just weren't getting enough status updates, enough information from him. And um, they ended up letting the executive producer go. And my boss, who was the uh, creative head of... Um, it's kind of a complicated structure because I've never really seen it uh, done this way and uh, at other studios before, but uh, he was referred to as a studio head. And what that really meant was uh, that we had basically two different teams that the head of those teams were the quote unquote studio heads there. So there was the studio that was working on Star Trek timelines and there's the studio that was uh, supporting the walking dead as well as this new project. Uh, So it's less studio heads and more team leads because we're all still the same studio. Right. Based off whatever project they're working on at the company. Right. Right. Exactly. Yeah. So, um, so he ended up stepping in as the new, um, like head of this project, like the, uh, the new executive producer and, uh, the publisher had given us, uh, this laundry list of things that they needed to see done, uh, which they worked with, um, they worked with some some people from from our end. I don't exactly remember who it was. How, that was. how far are you in the development at this point? Uh, it's still pre-release, but it's it's. I'd say it's probably like halfway to being ready to um, to release the game. So we still had a lot to do. Right, and so when this happened, were you you were bumped to like a producer role, right? Essentially, yeah. So I was um, I was working as the player support lead for The Walking Dead at the time, but I had expressed interest in training as a producer and started to get a little bit of exposure to that. And uh, through this whole scenario where we had a whole bunch of stuff that we needed to do in a very short amount of time, I think we only had like, I don't know, maybe like a month, like month and a half or something like that. 
the creative head, who is my boss and had assumed control of this project, brought me in under his wing as a like interim like producer trainee, and essentially uh, threw me in the deep end where it was just me and him and think maybe one other person that was helping with some project management duties, but we had to quickly organize, uh, I think it was like four or five scrum teams. And, oh, geez. Uh, That's a hell of a way to see if you can swim or not. Yeah, exactly. It's, it was very challenging, um, but we, we established what each one of them was going to be responsible for because we basically had like four or five different areas of the game that a lot of these tasks were focused on. And so the, the work was able to get divvy up in a way that, uh, in a way that made sense. Uh, but I was responsible for uh, running the daily stand-ups for two of those teams and uh, working with them to make sure that they had task coordination for all the different tasks that we're going to be doing, uh, following up with them basically every day on what like the status was of the things that they had worked on and if like which tickets got done and stuff like that. Um, so it really was like a trial-by-fire situation where it's like, okay, you wanted to get into production. Well, this is this is the worst version of it. Like right here and now is like, this is a, it was, it was a crunch period. Like I'm not going to beat around the bush. Like we were crunching to, uh, to try to get as much of this done as possible. And, uh, and the goal was to get the, the entire list. And uh, it was pretty clear when, like when they gave the list to us, like the, when the publisher gave it to us uh, and um, how much that they were asking for and by what time they needed it. Like there was no way, there was no way that we were going to be able to get it all done. But we we put a pretty sizable dent into um into all the stuff that they were asking for. I think we probably got like maybe like 70, 75% of the way there. And um even they said that they were impressed with how much they got done, which kind of was kind of a clear indicator that they were they were looking to get out of this project like regardless of what we put together. So is this like kind of a way to just sync the project in a way? I think so because they were unhappy with it. Yeah, it's and I mean I think that the writing was on the uh, the wall as far as like we were trying to to adapt the game uh, closer to what they were were hoping for, but it was a lot of changes to uh, to do within a really short amount of time, and I think that they had just lost interest in in wanting the game um, anymore anyway. So they were looking to cut their losses, but also not just be like a breach of contract or whatever. Uh, so right. they. Uh, I think that they set up this this test essentially for us to be able to see if we could get far enough, but they were setting us uh, setting us up for failure. Um, which I mean, to like to give them the benefit of the doubt, like if this was a game that they didn't believe in, then it is well within their right to to uh, figure out a way to, to pull out of it. But um, it definitely made for a very difficult like month, month and a half for the development team. And unfortunately, when the game got canceled, then that was when a round of layoffs affected the company, and that was. Uh, what caused me to exit the, uh, the company. So you, you're kind of walking around and everybody sort of knows, you know, really the subtext of what's happening, right? There's no one there. I would assume it's just kind of like, all right, yeah, we can do this and we'll make it happen. It's just like, yeah, we are going to try, but this is kind of a, a suicide mission. Yeah. We were under no illusions that this was going to be a insurmountable task. Like, right. It was, I, I don't want to say necessarily that people were like holding out, like, hope for the sake of hope, but they, they wanted to give it as honest of a try as they possibly could, because this is what people were passionate about. Like this is right. Like people don't get into game development because it's just something to pay the bills. Like sure. Depending on where you are, it can be very lucrative, but this is, this is a very passionate industry with very passionate people. And if, if they were just interested in a paycheck, then they wouldn't be here. So 
they were committed to trying to make this work as best as they possibly could, despite the fact that it was going to be one of the probably their roughest couple of weeks or month that they had been at the company at that point. So, um, yeah, that, I'm extremely, extremely proud of all of the work that we put into for that, despite the fact that it never saw the light of day. But people really busted their asses to uh, try to make that work. And unfortunately, it just didn't work out for us. Yeah, well, that sounds like also that opened up an opportunity for you to prove yourself as a producer and set yourself up for for more success in the future. Absolutely. I mean, the um, like I ended up landing the uh, the gig at uh, WB Games Boston um, because of people that I knew at Disruptor Beam that had been. Um, I forget if the person who got me the uh, the job if if they uh, if they were affected by that same round of layoffs or a previous one or or what happened there, but they uh, they had already gotten a job as um, at WB Games Boston and. Uh, when they had a position for an assistant producer pop up and they knew that that's what I wanted to get into, then uh, they put my name forward to the executive producer at WB, and um, that's how I landed at the company I'm at now. Cool. And take us, before we get more WB stuff, take us through crunch. Crunch is always you know, a controversial topic um, throughout the industry, but like you have firsthand experience and 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 uh, with it, so take us through that process and what that's like and what that does to you. Crunch is a really interesting thing because, like, it really depends on what type of company that you're at and what type of project that you're working on for uh, whether or not it's going to happen and what it's going to look like. Because this was a pre-release project, so like most of the stuff that I worked on through my career um, has been uh, games that are already live. So it's like doing QA for making new heroes on. Um, on Marvel Puzzle Quest or uh, doing player support for um, Star Trek Timelines or The Walking Dead. So this game was like the first one that uh, was pre-release. And I think that Crunch is a lot more of a... um, I'll even go as far as to say that Crunch is an eventuality for something that is pre-release because like every game has stuff that is not going at the pace that it would need to in order for everything to just totally smoothly arrive on time by the time that they're expecting to ship the product. And eventually like release dates are a thing. Like the reason why companies like Blizzard or so many others will say like, it's ready when it's ready is because they are trying to hold off the eventuality of crunch as much as humanly possible. Cause a release date is for developers when the bill is coming due. And if you don't have enough money to be able to cash that check, then you're going to be in trouble. So you really have to to put in a lot of effort in order to be able to to get the project out in the state that is expected to be for when players first get their hands on it. Now, it's it's a little easier when you're dealing with games that are going to be a live service, which so many mobile games are, is because there's a lot of stuff that you'll be able to uh, add into the game after the fact or bugs you can fix after the fact. You have several releases, like both um, through... Uh, server-side data and through client data, so you can be shipping stuff out the door basically every day if you want to. But um, when you release a title, there's a certain standard of quality that it needs to meet in order for people to download your game, play your game, and stick around long enough for them to be able to become customers. And the distinction between a player and a customer is just anyone who's spent literally any money within the game. That's how most, uh, most companies will typically make that distinction. So when it comes to crunch... When it's pre-release, uh, it tends to be an experience where um, 
as a lot of people probably imagine that it is, it's like, here's a laundry list of all the different things that we need to do. Here's all the tasks that need to get done. Here's all the bugs that need to get squashed. We need to organize into teams that will allow people to be able to divide and conquer on this work in a way that makes sense. And now when you're in the thick of it, like when you're in the trenches with, uh, with everyone that's working on all of these, uh, these different tasks, um, it is very much a like heads down environment where like everyone is just like, no time to talk, need to focus on this work because I want to try my best to not stay too late tonight. A lot of people will go under the assumption that they probably will be working late. And that was not uncommon during this time of working on Crunch for uh, the project that we had um, at Disruptor Beam. And as a producer, it's really about trying to make sure that you give everyone everything that they possibly can in order to be able to stay um, undistracted, stay focused, stay heads down, and just anticipate what they're going to need, or if, if they need something, then get it to them as quickly as possible. Uh, so that can be communication, that can be food, that can be documents, that can be literally anything that you can think of. There were multiple occasions where, um, during crunch uh, on this project, that I I stayed late every single day. I stayed late with uh, our developers. I was usually one of the last people to leave. And that was because I wanted to make sure that everybody had everything that they could need. And more than once, I was responsible for, and I didn't have to pay my own money for this because they gave me uh, the company credit card to, to uh, do this, but um, like ordering meals for people to be able to have dinner and, and stay late um, at, uh, at the studio and keep working on their stuff. Um, I think that, most days that I was there um, during this crunch period, I probably left the office like around, I want to say like 7.30 to 9 o'clock, somewhere in there. Um, and I would get in the office like between 9.30 and 10. So you'd be like 12 hour, 12 hour days pretty much. Yeah, close to it. Um, yeah. And, and how many weeks? You said it was like a month, right? Yeah, it was like during that project. It was probably like four to six weeks, uh, that we were doing this. Um, and it, it went by fast. Like that's, that's one of the things that, I mean, your, your mileage may vary on your experience with it. Cause like some people, I mean, in different companies crunch for different periods of time. Like I know that for, um, I think this came up during, one of you even been during your research, Graham, for the portfolio class that you were researching rockstar games and uh, learning about some of oh, the things yeah. they were doing before, uh, was it, Grand Theft Auto Five, or yeah, I think it was five. Yeah, and like it's just brutal. they crunch for months. Like I think that they yeah no they it's like their whole development period is crunch. I think there's like a big distinction that probably needs to be made in in the sense of like you know there's a, there's a difference between crunching for a, a month or two versus like that's your development life all the time. Like that that to me is unsustainable to be like we're going to work twelve to sixteen hours a day all the time everyone's expected to do it fuck you kind of thing like I, I don't know how people deal with that like that that's too much someone's gonna get burned out real fast that way absolutely and like that's that's something that i don't think is quite as common maybe nowadays as it as it used to be like rockstar is one of those like i think kind of rare examples of, of stuff like that happening where um it used to be a lot more commonplace like you'd hear about stuff like that all the time where it's like the yeah. last like six months to a year or maybe even more is all just like crunching. Like you're working 60 hour plus weeks every single week. Uh, people come having to come in on weekends to get their shit done. Um, right. so I'm, I'm 
yeah, at least through my own experience, I'm happy to say that that seems to be fairly infrequent. And uh, working at, on this project for Disruptor Beam was the only time. It was one of only, I think, three times that I experienced crunch, and it was by far the worst in, because it was just so long. Um, yeah. Because crunch on a pre-release project, like I was saying earlier, is, is so much different from crunch on a live project because it's like if you're crunching on something for a live project, it means that something pretty catastrophically wrong happened with the game. Right. So you have people that are staying late. You have to order them food to work on some really weird mysterious bug that makes it so that like only ios players are unable to log into the game and they're getting their asses kicked because they can't show up and defend their uh their keeps and game of thrones conquest like that's that's something that i have have worked on before and it's it's not fun but it's at least it's isolated to like one to three days and it's usually with a lot smaller group of people because like for a problem like that it's it's basically just engineering and community that you'll have to keep around and just keep the customer service reps informed. But I think we saw this with CD project red, right? When they're trying to hit a launch window at Christmas time and they have to get it there. Um, so it, it, being in crunch for months at a time, it can really drain somebody. Uh, once you're in live services that that financial need isn't as hard hitting, it's still there, but it's, it's not to that, that level of extreme, like it needs to get launched at this date and you cannot you cannot pass it and that's that's something that comes into play a lot with um with live service games as far as like so at the company that i work at now because I, I support the live operations team and i was actually the one who was responsible for um for coming up with our uh, on-call system for both within business hours and outside of business hours there's there's a distinction because uh, we eventually switched to uh, working remotely during uh, quarantine um, so we had a need for both, but it was originally just the uh, the outside of business hours. And uh, part of our process for whenever there is like a live issue that's happening um, is uh, determining from the business perspective of like, is this a thing that needs to be addressed right now outside of business hours or can we wait until the next day in order to address it? And uh, we take that into um we take the perspectives of a couple of different disciplines into account. We, we take uh, product management into account, which they're like the people who are most responsible for sustaining the business from a financial standpoint. Um, and then there's the, uh, the community and customer service perspectives of like, if we don't fix this now, then how pissed off are our players going to be? And like, does this, how badly does this affect the, uh, the content that we're running currently? So, um, so from that perspective, we have a lot more leverage that way of just like, how bad is this problem? How much is this going to impact our bottom line? Whereas like if you're pre-release, then like every day that you are not shipping your product out the door is money spent, but no money gained. Um, so you really have to, to spend a lot of, of time and effort making sure that that release goes as smoothly as possible because you're trying to start start up your cash flow with the game. And if you don't have a significant enough cash flow, then the game is not going to last. So take me through a typical day in terms of how you structure things, organize people and tasks and things like that. Um, I don't know what that looks like for you, but I'm curious to know because I think every everyone's got a different process in terms of how they organize things and, and how they dictate. So I'm, I'm just curious about your your personal philosophy and structure there. Absolutely. I mean, it's... Um a typical day is, is a little bit difficult of a thing to uh, to go through, so I'll, I'll walk through what a typical sprint looks like, which for us is like a two-week period. Yeah, because um, things 
vary a lot in terms of when they happen and um, the uh, the cadence of how often that you do certain things oftentimes depends on the dam um, uh, the upstream work and the temperament of your developers. So, for example, um, in traditional Agile Scrum methodology, uh, you are supposed to meet with your team for a daily stand-up every single morning. And that's supposed to be basically a dialogue of, like, what are the things that you're currently working on and, like, what are some of the things that you are, are going through with that process of working on them so you can kind of talk it out with, with other people and figure out who you're going to connect with throughout the day. Uh, but our team through live operations... Uh, a lot of that ends up being because they work more just like they don't collaborate across disciplines. So it's a lot of just like they they self-organize through our um, our internal like uh, messaging channels and stuff like that, like if they need help. So uh, standups often end up being more of just like a like, here's a status report. I'm working on this. I'm going to go keep working on that once I'm done. Uh, so, um, doing them every day kind of broke up the rhythm of their morning a little bit too much. So we now actually only do standups twice a week and we do them, uh, entirely remotely. So people don't have to show up with, uh, to like a zoom call or something like that. They'll just, um, handle it over Slack. And my, uh, my associate producer that helps me on live operations, he, uh, follows up with people on the individual tasks that, uh, that are currently in flight and when they're coming due. Um, so that'll vary from team to team. Um, and from company to company. And I think, are you on Jira? Yeah, we, um, so I've worked in Jira for all three of the game studios that I've been in. And, uh, and it's, it's an interesting platform and, uh, it's, it's one of those, like it's, it's extremely powerful, but it's not particularly user-friendly. You know what I think Jira is like in my experience with it has been, it's kind of like uh, Batman and the Arkham, the Batman Arkham games. Oh, you can do all this shit, right? But do you need to do all this? What do I actually need to to be successful? Like, do I need so many gadgets to the point where it's like I even remember I had this? Yep. Yeah, that's that's how it feels to me. I was going to say, in every one of those gadgets, you do not have the manual to use that gadget handy, but you need the manual, and you need to go find online where a serviceable manual exists. It's very similar to and the way that you're talking about Agile Scrum and how you kind of tailor it to to your team's uh, temperament. I, the same type of stuff happens over on our end too, where we were we were thinking like, okay, how far how far do we want to go down Agile Scrum? And knowing it and knowing the things that you can get rid of and still be like a, a like a really lean mean machine, uh, that's it makes it so much easier for everybody. Like the stand up piece, having that remote. Or, uh, or, or like making sure when we're doing retros, like simplify it down so it's really easy for everybody to drop information in. And a lot of that too will also depend on like how granular that uh, your team likes to get with the tasks, or how granular mm -hmm. that your producer will prefer to do them. I, whenever I'm doing story writing, I always leave it up to the people that I am doing story writing with to tell me what they want to be written up. Um, yep. Because. They know their work way better than I'm ever going to know it, so I'm not going to tell them how their work ought to be documented. Um, sometimes for people who I think are not always necessarily super familiar with exactly what level of control that a producer should have over documenting their tasks, like sometimes people like defer to me of like, oh, like what, like what do you think this task should be costly? Like what makes sense for your scale? And it's like. Like it's not my scale, it's our scale. So you need to you need to work with me to help me figure out like what you think should be uh, the cost for this task. So that's interesting. You write you write the tickets. You write the story tickets. 
so the way that we handle it is, is there's some work that we're able to do to kind of prep um, for story writing so that we're able to just maximize the time that I have every, like all my developers in there working with me. Um, cause we write our stories, uh, based on a given calendar month. So our process, um, is that like we have a, an upcoming month that has not had its content planned out yet. One of our designers and, uh, one of our PMs will work together to, uh, start pulling that calendar um, together with all the different content that we'll be running. Uh, we do run all of our different types of events and the content verticals and stuff on, um, on like kind of concrete cadences. So there will be patterns that basically kind of flesh, like the, the calendar fills in itself as long as you're following the patterns for the most part. Like there's not a whole lot of like, um, I guess creative agency, I'll call it. Uh, because every month has like a certain like certain things that need to be present in it, and they always happen roughly around the same time of, of that given month. But um, once that calendar is planned and it's approved, and our economy design team has um, come up with the uh, the rewards plan for like how we're going to distribute rewards through all these different events and stuff like that, uh, I or my associate producer or the both of us will uh, start writing up all. We'll make an epic for the uh, for the calendar month. And um, we have a template that has all of the uh, the stories that for we write stories for each individual event and in, in each individual piece of content. And for the ones that happen literally every single month, then we have a template where all of those just get brought in as soon as we create the epic. And then we fill in the gaps for anything that um, is not necessarily guaranteed to happen every single month. So we'll refer to that calendar plan to uh, to fill in those gaps. Uh, that's all the stuff that my, uh, associate producer and I will do on our own. And then once we have all of those parent stories, then we will have a meeting with our development team. Um, so all the different disciplines within live operations, that's design, uh, product management, community, art, everybody, everybody will come in. We'll have QA in there as well. Uh, and that's when we go down, uh, parent story, by parent story to write up all of the subtasks, like the individual, like those are the actual like pieces of work. Basically the stories kind of serve as like a bucket to contain the tasks that people will really be doing. And then uh, once all those tasks on a given, um, once all those subtasks on a given parent story is done, that's when the whole story, like all of the work that is contained within uh, gets handed over to uh, QA to get the, um, to get the event scheduled and, uh, and tested so they can make sure that it's ready for prime time. And do you guys run pretty much in like two weeks? Uh, two weeks is our sprint cadence. We don't do story writing every single sprint because um, it really depends on how much uh, runway that we've created ourselves uh, for ourselves. So we have stories. So we're, we're close to the end of May right now. Uh, we have stories written through the end of July. So like how hands-on are you during like monitoring the, the sprints or the, the developers kind of moving their tickets along or are you checking in with them over, over Slack and sort of doing it yourself or what, how does that work? Uh, it's a little bit of a mix depending on the person. Uh, some people are really good about making sure that the tickets are all updated. Um, some of them are aware of the tasks that they're supposed to do and they don't really touch the ticket. Like they'll get the tickets assigned to them, but they don't touch them until they're done. Um, so it'll go directly from open to ready for testing basically. Um, mm -hmm. So it really all depends on the person. I think that the um, the more um, that an individual contributor has on their plate, 
then the less likely they are to be like keeping everything up to date because they're kind of just frantically trying to get through as much of their work as possible. So they are meeting deadlines and don't have to work late or anything like that. Um, so yeah, it really all depends. Um, but the, the standups that we do, uh, are pretty good as far as like following up on tasks. It's like, Hey, this is coming due in a couple of days. Like what's your trajectory looking like for having this done on time? And if they're going to be running late for the due date, then just making sure that QA is looped in saying like, Hey, I know this was due on Thursday, but it's actually going to be coming in on Monday. So that's a couple less days that you'll have to test uh, just as a heads up. And we always build the, um, we build out the due dates with um, buffer time. So that like, yeah, got to have some cushion, right? Exactly. Cause if you're, if it, if every due date you have is literally a drop dead due date, then so many things are going to fall on the floor and there's a lot of, you'll create a lot of problems for yourself. Um, so if like it's, and it's a very simple tactic, but like if you are working on a team, then you're trying to get further ahead. Um, and then like setting a, providing more cushion to your due dates is probably the simplest thing that you can do that will definitely pay dividends. Like you will get further ahead if you have people that are aspiring to, earlier due dates, they may not necessarily meet those due dates, but like if you say have something that is typically um, the due date is set two weeks ahead of its live date and you set it to three weeks, you'll probably get it like two and a half weeks before. So you're, you're gaining a couple of days there and that's, that's what you want. And your burn down chart looks great. Right. Exactly. Uh, so what, what, what's the future for you, my friend? Are you, are you sticking around WB Boston? Do you have any other aspirations or are you kind of like happy where you are right now? Yeah, I mean, I, I haven't really put like a ton of thought into it. Um, there's obviously still a lot going on with WB Games Boston, um, and Game of Thrones Conquest is still going strong in its fifth year, so um, or it's coming up on its fifth uh, five-year anniversary, I think, in October. Um, so there's definitely still a future for me here. There's still a good growth opportunity, um, but I mean, like most people who are like established in the industry now, like recruiters are reaching out to everybody, so. Like if there is an enticing offer for something, then I'll like I'd be silly not to consider it. But I'm I'm not actively looking for anything because I'm pretty happy I think with uh, with the people that I work with. Being there for so long, that's got to be nice to have that shorthand with everybody that you're working with, uh, instead of having to relearn the the whole system of of uh, the interpersonal relationships with your team. Absolutely, it's like it's one of those things where. And I've gotten a lot better at this over time, but like the hardest part, I think of, of, um, at least for me anyway, like the hardest part of like getting into like a new company is just like learning all of the people's names and matching names with faces and stuff like that. And I've gotten a lot more comfortable with it, uh, as time has gone on. But like, I remember, uh, when I first started at Disruptor Beam, there were people that I like reintroduced myself to multiple times there because I was just meeting so many new people that it's just like, Oh, I forgot that I have already met you like twice. And we've like had a group lunch together where you were there. It's just like, cause there's just so many people that you're learning so quickly. Um, so that's, mm-hmm. that's one of the bigger struggles that I've had in the past, but I think I've gotten much better at that now. But, uh, but you're right. The, um, like when you have these established relationships with people and like, you know, kind of where each of you stand and like what you, what your role is in um, each other's work. I think that that's, that's something you have to build up over time. That's not something that you're just going to like show up on your first day and be like, I know what I need to do for all of you. 
Like you need to, you need to learn that and get to know your, uh, your team, which is, is the most important thing that a producer can do. Like if you're, if you're not understanding the people that, uh, that you work with and, um, at least a surface level understanding of the work that they do, then you have no hope of being able to, to support them with the things that they're going to need. Yeah. Just watch your plans burn to the ground if that's the case. Yes. Exactly. We uh, we went through that a little bit with a, uh, a senior producer that we had that um, uh, he left uh, at, like close to the beginning of this year. But he had this whole uh, plan that he had established where he was going to um, split our live operations team into two teams that would uh, alternate every other like every other calendar month. And it was in the aspiration of trying to create more uh, more time for each of the individual teams to focus on uh, what we referred to as initiatives, which is basically like this is not part of your core calendar pipeline, but they are like new event types that we want to come up with or iterations on already existing event types to make them better. And uh, literally like the week before we were supposed to split the team, uh, he leaves. And uh, my associate producer and I were the ones who were left working on all of it. And um, we learned fairly quickly, like within two sprints, that uh, I think that the plan was just formulated based off of a lack of understanding of, of what the team needs were and what all of the communication pitfalls were going to be when we did do that. Because it was, it was a rough uh, two sprints that we went through. And that just highlighted to me even more that like the, the whole concept of like servant leadership, if that's something you guys have ever heard of before, is is just really important to making sure that your team is is functioning and that you understand what their needs are. Well said. Well said. And I think, Jeff, that, that brings us to the conclusion here. Thanks so much for, for spending some time with us and, and letting us into the journey of one Jeff Curley. Absolutely, guys. Thanks for having me. I would uh, definitely love to come back again sometime soon. All right, that wraps up our interview with Jeff Curley. We want to thank Jeff again for joining the show today, and we hope you enjoyed listening to his story. And you can find more info about Mudstack by checking us out on mudstack.com and by joining our Discord and following us on Twitter. Well, that wraps up our show, everybody. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time on Clear as Mud.